Welcome to the podcast, episode 87. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for doing whatever it is you do to get us into this conversation together. So, podcast, episode 87. Here we are. So, I, I want to talk about um, uh, something in our Constitution, the United States Constitution, that has sort of gone by the way, and I don't think it ought to have gone by the way at all, and there are some severe problems that um, that attend uh, ignoring this part of the Constitution. According to our uh, – well, I'll back up. The last time the United States was in a declared war was in the Second World War. And what happened was, um, obviously, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and uh, President Roosevelt uh, then asked Congress for a declaration of war against Japan and Congress responded by uh, issuing that declaration of war. And then the president, as the executive, as the commander-in-chief, uh, was then responsible to prosecute that war, uh, having been declared by uh, Congress. Now, this was explicitly, uh, this was just right according to Hoyle. This is right out of the Constitution. This is how it was supposed to function. In the United States Constitution, Congress declares war, and the president, as the executive um, and the commander-in-chief, pursues that war. He leads the country into war, uh, but Congress is the one who declares it. Congress is the, the one who declares war. Now, the United States has been in numerous conflicts uh, since the Second World War, uh, some of them actual wars, and some of them in the gray area, and some of them not. So, um, for example, we were in the Korean War, which was not a declared war. That was a UN police action. Uh, we were in the Vietnam War, where 50,000 Americans were killed. There was the uh, first Gulf War, uh, and there was the, uh, uh, the second Gulf War. And we've had limited actions in uh, other places. Now, let's say you've got a hostage situation where, you know, 15 Americans are taken hostage by terrorists at a ritzy motel in some third world country. And the president determines to use military action to rescue them. And he sends in a SEAL team or, you know, some sort of special forces team to re rescue them, and shots are fired and people are killed, and it's a military action on, um, on foreign territory. Does that require Congress to declare war beforehand? No. The Constitution understands and made provision for those sorts of limited uh, uh, military exercises, and we, uh, we did that in, in our war with the Barbary pirates under uh, Thomas Jefferson. So the Constitution allows for uh, what are called letters of mark, M-A-R-Q-U-E, letters of mark and reprisal. So you can conduct limited um, military you know, uh, uh, limited military uh, operations in a foreign country to achieve a very limited objective without a declaration of war, and that would be fully constitutional. But when you call up the Army and the Navy and the Air Force— and your objective is regime change, right? You're, you're going after a country, 
And the whole point of the of the operation is to overthrow someone like Saddam Hussein and replace him with someone more to your liking. There is no other way to describe that than as an old-fashioned war and of the kind that Congress must declare if it's to be constitutional. Now, what defenders of our current way of doing things want to say is, well, what's important is for Congress, for the representatives of the people, to have a say in it. They need to authorize military action. But that's not definite enough, because what happens is is precisely what happened to George W. Bush is uh, when uh, when he went to war with Iraq after uh, 9-11, there was a vote in Congress that authorized military action, but it wasn't a declaration of war. And so consequently, you are volunteering to you, – you're setting yourself up to have 435 backseat drivers um, – when, when Congress declares war on Iraq, if Congress were to, to declare war on Iraq, um, everybody who votes for it is voting for Iraq to go down and for the, the leadership to be replaced. They're, they're voting for a war. Um, if they vote for military action, nobody is exactly sure what they're voting for. And so if things start to go badly – they can always claim that they didn't vote for that, or I, you know, I voted for military action, but not for that many bombers, not for that, me- not for that amount of um, shelling, or that I didn't vote for three regiments. I just voted for, you know, so on. Everybody, everybody can second guess, and what this does is it lets Congress off the hook, and that's why Congress likes it. All right, what they want is the ability to authorize it. And take credit for it if it goes well, and to have deniability if it goes poorly. And so, what we need to do is we—I think conservatives who have a conservative Christians who have a tendency to rally around behind the troops whenever the troops are in harm's way—need to say, okay, you can you can pray for your cousin or your nephew or whoever who's in the middle of the action, and still think, still believe that Congress is responsible to declare war. Uh, that's the a duty that's assigned to them by the Constitution, and they shouldn't be able they shouldn't be permitted to um, shuffle out of it. So I'm currently um, reading a book by Victor David David Hansen, uh, and the book is called The Case for Trump. Now, Victor David Hansen is a, a scholar and an intellectual, a very fine uh, writer, um, classicist, a historian, and uh, I've appreciated stuff he's done uh, in the past. And he is um, he's a standout individual in that he is um, one of the few intellectual leaders who has come out in favor of Donald Trump. And his... Um, his argument for Trump is quite uh, striking. Victor David Hansen does not um, – this is not a you, – you know those books that come out during election seasons where some ghostwriter is hired to write a puff piece about, you know, um, you know, the candidate for whatever, looking toward the future or building our future together or we have hope or, you know, whatever. That, that kind of um, uh, book that – puffs up or touts 
a particular candidate is not what this book is like at all. This is a fairly uh, sizable book, and Victor David Hansen is uh, acutely aware of Donald Trump's um, tawdry business past, his um, his somewhat licentious uh, personal past, his uh, tendency to vent his spleen at at different people, his most recent uh, uh, renewed spat with John McCain, even though John McCain is now dead. Um, you know, all, all the things like that. Hansen knows all about it, and he um, he acknowledges it. He sees it. But when I was reading, when I was reading Hansen's uh, account of these things, he he used a metaphor in passing that uh, brought me up short because it's it's a metaphor that I think describes the situation that we're in almost perfectly, and that is that Trump is chemotherapy. Now, how does chemotherapy work? And I'm not here opening up a debate on whether we ought to try chemotherapy or whether chemotherapy is a good thing. But this is just how chemotherapy works. And and I want to argue, uh, following Hansen, that Trump is, for the body politic, Trump is uh, chemotherapy. Uh, Trump is uh, functioning as chemo. So what does that mean? When you, when you have uh, chemotherapy, what you're doing is they, they discover you have cancer. You've got, a, you've got a tumor that they took out, and there's cancer in other parts of your body. And so they um, give you chemicals uh, that are poisonous, that are toxic. And these toxic or poisonous chemicals are toxic to all of you. They kill cancer cells, and they kill healthy cells. Chemotherapy is poison. A deliberate poison. Now, chemotherapy is administered uh, in the hope that you will uh, destroy the, the cancer cells first and the healthy tissue second, or that you will have a lot of healthy tissue left when the chemo is ended. And so, uh, what this, but, but what this analogy requires is for you to understand or see or acknowledge that the body politic has cancer and that the deep state is that cancer. So you can acknowledge, as, as, uh, uh, as Hansen does, that Trump's style is toxic and it's not, you know, just imagine a happy, healthy country ruled by someone like Donald Trump for 50 years. Uh, that would be uh, like treating the, your, your chemotherapy as though it were food. Um, well, no, it's not. It's not that kind of thing at all. You, you could acknowledge that, yeah, Trump's style, his abrasiveness, his problems, all of this, is um, is off-putting and toxic, and, and it's a problem. But his toxicity is not what's killing us right now. What's killing us right now is the deep state. What's killing it, killing us right now, are the decisions by un, unelected. Uh, leaders, what Philip Hamburger uh, calls the administrative state. And the ability of the administrative state to undermine and fight back and to uh, see to it that this Mueller investigation just um, just recently concluded was carried on for two years with nothing really there is a good example of, um, of what 
the administrative state is capable of pulling off. So Victor David Hansen argues that uh, something can be a true, uh, a true problem and yet not be the problem. And so consequently, that means that for Christians coming up in the presidential election in 2020, um, what, what are we likely to face? It's likely that Trump will run again. He will want to, um, he, he will want to be vindicated in, at the polls. It's likely that Trump will run again. And the current crop of Democratic candidates for the Democratic nomination uh, indicate that whoever gets gets that nomination is going to be, as I call it, some commie. So uh, we're going to be confronted with a choice between two situations. And one situation is going to be, shall we have four more years of chemo? And the other situation is, shall we knock off the chemo and, uh, and watch uh, the cancer come roaring back? from its remission. So we're continuing with uh, podcast episode 87, and we come now to our hamartiology section. Last time in, in episode 86, I gave you the Greek word anamos, and I'm going to do something similar to you uh, again this time. The Greek word anamos means without law, and it needs to be distinguished for the, from the other Greek word, anamos, that has an omicron at the end and not an omega. So there's very similar words with very similar meanings. So this anamos is used twice in Romans, uh, Romans 2, 12. For as many have sinned without law shall also perish without law. This is referred to the Gentiles who sinned even though they were not under Torah. Not being under Torah does not remove you from the authority of God's law absolutely. Um, this is in Romans 2. You remember in Romans 1, uh, Paul argued that uh, the Gentiles who, um, have, have, who have seen the majesty of God in, through what has been made are without excuse in their immorality. So there, this is a re- biblical reference to uh, natural law or natural revelation. So... Uh, being uh, without law means, in this sense, they're without the Torah. They're they're without uh, the books of Moses. They're without law in that sense. But not being under Torah does not remove you from the authority of God's law, absolutely. The only reason men perish at all is that they are lawbreakers. That's why we die. We die because we're lawbreakers. And that means that no one is apart from the law, period. Uh, no one is absolutely free of the law because if they were absolutely free of the law, they would be immortal. They couldn't die. But the Gentiles were apart from the peculiar mosaic applications of God's eternal law, and the word anamas refers to that. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.